0: Hello individual, Joey Tuason here. Thank you for stopping by. This is the Individual Collective Podcast where we sit down with people who utilize what makes them unique to create value for others. Today we are joined by a mural artist from the Philippines who has piqued the interest of thousands of locals who have spotted his work both around the metro and online. He's also piqued the interest of international brands such as PayPal, Shake Shack, and Heineken who have all commissioned him. In this episode, we tackle a barrage of topics like his experience working in the Filipino creative class, how NFTs have changed the art scene forever, facing resistance as an artist, the history of mural art, and of course, how Quentin Tarantino and Stanley have influenced his personal style. Jappy shares a lot of valuable insights, especially for people working in the creative and freelance economy. And I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. Please welcome, Jappy Aconcilio. Jappy, welcome to the show, man.
1: Hey, Joey. Hey. Good to be here, man.
0: So I just want to mention, I know you don't like compliments, so I'll make this quick. But you have utilized your unique blend of style, um, your background in law, your skill of illustrating and murals to create value for people, whether it be an individual catching a glimpse of your art on the street, to big corporations that commission you for their brands. So thank you for doing your part in making Manila a little bit more pleasant to the eye. And I'm really excited to have you on tonight.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I I try. You know, I don't know about the truthfulness of all that, but (laughs) I really do try my best. That's what I want for the industry. That's what I want for the community. I just want to do my part.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, as individuals, we can only sort of focus on what is in our control. So it seems that you exactly. have that, that mindset um, coming in. So mm-hmm. I mean, you don't want to change the whole art world or the art scene. Like you just want to focus on the immediate impact that yeah. you can create. So
1: we do what we can. And that's, that's the best we can do.
0: Really. I, so I wanted to start off with the general art scene. Um, and just to give, the audience a little bit more context of what you do, so just to give the audience a little bit more information, Jappy is a famous mural artist uh, here in the Philippines. <laughs> yeah, <to> say famous. <laughs> uh, very, very uh, well skilled, and he knows what he's doing. In fact, I went to his exhibit, his most recent exhibit here in uh, Space Encounters. It was actually walking distance from my place, so I thought perfect opportunity. I've seen your work in the the flesh in uh, public areas, but to actually see your work um, as as a project of yours that you did separately from brand commissions, it was really awesome to see your work in the flesh. And it's very colorful, very powerful, very loud too.
1: Yeah, that's what I like.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to start off first with, um, what do you think is the role of public art, um, such as murals in cities?
1: Hmm. well it's it's a way to get art out uh, to to viewers and audiences that I think wouldn't have uh, like access to the more private shows or don't have the cultural background I don't want to say anything that might sound like offensive but something like they it just isn't within them to go to art shows mm-hmm. it's not within them to seek that out or they might feel like, some things could be too fancy or pretentious or anything to them, um, but it's a good way to get out get art out into the public eye in a way that can be consumed by everyone um in whichever way they want it to. You know how uh like art in galleries, galleries are curated um some galleries are fancier than others, some have contemporary art, some have extremely fine art, and so their audiences are also sort of curated to that kind of level. People who like contemporary art can go to a contemporary art uh, gallery, and vice versa with more um, abstract art or or you know old old style museum art. But with public art, you know the people who can see it could be just the average guy on the street, could be the average you know grab driver can see it as well as uh, as well as you know more re- refined individuals. Okay, that doesn't sound very. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? No, I get you because
0: art, there is that sort of stigma that art is only for the rich or art is only reserved for the museums, uh, reserved for the wealthy that can afford to buy them. But Mm -hmm. public art, it seems like what you just mentioned, it it gives that exposure.
1: It's open to everyone to see. and I didn't want to have the whole rich versus, you know, not rich conversation. But, you know, it doesn't have to be that just because I'm, you know, I'm up here that I should go to art museums and that's the only people who can see art. Mm -hmm. Art can be a street art. Public art can be consumed and viewed by as many different people as possible and can have their own take on it. And that's what I like the most about it.
0: And so when an individual, let's say, sees um, public art, um, public art in general, what what do you think? Let's say in the modern times, um, how is that affecting cities or what value does it bring to cities in your opinion?
1: Well, in there're two ways to look at it. So, uh, like in developing countries here, it does it does seem like public art really brings value to a certain community or it could bring prestige to a certain community. Um let's say like let's say BGC, whenever someone mentions murals or big street art and they they ask me, "Oh, you do murals. Did you do something in BGC?" I'm like, "Oh, okay. So that's like the standard for your a street artist in the Philippines. Obviously, that's not the real case, but there, that it's like it, it elevated BGC into that space mm-hmm. where it's a cultural hub now because of the street art murals. But it can also be kind of damaging to 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 communities that that thrive. Um, I'm not sure about here in the Philippines, but they, this conversation is driven it is being driven in places like New York and Brooklyn, where you know places like Bushwick. Uh, or Williamsburg in, in Brooklyn are being gentrified because of the public art murals. I mean, big companies com- big companies are seeing the value in big art in big big scale mural art. So they commission artists to b- do murals, and then they say, okay, this property is now more expensive, more valuable. This neighborhood is more valuable. Will drive up the real estate prices, make rent more expensive, and you know it drives out certain communities from those places. And that's the, the negative effect of that.
0: Right. Mm. And you're right. Like, it also does, I guess, contribute to the economic impact within that community. Because, oh, yeah. let's say, uh, the wall—they're very, very famous walls all around New York and like Chicago. Like, there's that one block where sort of the entire block is kind of like a mural. There's pops of color uh, on the street and from the buildings itself. Um, there's murals there within this certain block in Chicago. So. I think just having a place where it's nice to be in, it's beautiful, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll attract people to that place. And then all of a sudden, yeah. there's more spending that happens in that area. So, yeah, yeah you're right. I think art in general is um, seen as something that, you know, it's hard to get paid for. And we'll talk about um, monetization later on. But, you know, <laughs> there is a lot of value in having creativity and having art be publicly displayed in cities and it's yeah. fantastic to see that growing in the Philippines. I mean, you've been around, you've been in this industry for basically, it's been a five year journey for you, man.
1: Around five years since I, since I really began. And um,
0: yeah, this um, notion of the creative class rising, you mentioned it in... One of your talks in one of your Jappy Days Live. And if you guys haven't checked it out, Jappy Days Live is a nice uh, 10 episode (laughs) short series on giving talks about um, murals and giving talks about how to monetize your art, uh, giving talks about dealing with clients. There's a whole lot of good stuff there. So please check that out. But what I wanted to ask you was this notion of the creative class rising. You mentioned that, for example, in the US, 34, well, I also did a little bit of research before, but... Mm-hmm. Last time I checked, 34% of their uh, population is making money being involved in the creative class. So they're producing something mm-hmm. new, whether it be an art or technology, and they're making a full-time living out of that. Now, you mm-hmm. look at countries in Europe, and that number even goes a little bit higher. Or even like in Canada, yeah. certain cities, it goes even higher. In Luxembourg, it's the number one, 54%. So, mm-hmm. But in the Philippines, we don't measure that shit. <laughs>
1: like, Not yet. We,
0: not yet. Not yet. Not yet. We we don't yeah. measure the economic impact of the creative industry within the Philippines, and that's hurting us because we tend to pair up the creative sector with the services sector, uh, and oh, that yep. and because we don't measure the economic impact of the creative sector individually, the government doesn't know how much value is actually contributing to society. So my question mm-hmm. is like, what's it been like for you? Like this five-year journey to be working in a country that doesn't even measure the economic impact of the value of creativity.
1: well okay well i can't blame the government 100 percent uh because you know as a developing country we have other priorities up on the list of course uh especially with when it comes to economics and, and making money and having jobs um priority is of course jobs that are more secure uh secure right um but yeah, in the five years, it's been quite a ride, especially I love seeing that it's been growing. It's definitely been growing the, the, the kind of the freelancer economy of the country. When I was starting out, you know, it was really tough to kind of explain to people what I was doing. Of course, there have already been muralists before me, great, amazing muralists before me, um, who have been doing it for much longer. But, but around the time I was starting out, it still hasn't been. The age of digital of, of social media has only just kind of started rising mm-hmm. by that time so art wasn't that widely viewed and widely accepted so you know this just like so what do you do i'm like oh i paint murals like, what, what, what is that um and it was hard to kind of explain how i made money through it it was hard to kind of convince my family to trust me on like just trust me i, got, I know what i'm <laughs> doing just trust me because of course they're thinking in the old-fashioned way that if it's not stable, it's scary. Mm-hmm. If it's something we don't understand, it's scary. Um, but nowadays, it's a little bit more accepted. I'd, I'd say it's a lot more accepted. So many people are getting into the freelance game. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially now during pandemic, people have been learning a lot at home and and applying that to what they're making. So you know, from in the five years, in the very short five years, uh, it's been a big change, especially with the dawn of... Social media, you know, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, plus um, this whole being at home, following your passion kind of trend—not mm-hmm. just being at home and learning, but there's a whole trend of following your passion is actually a good idea, mm-hmm. and so people are getting into it more. Uh, so I'm I'm glad it's where it is now. It it could be better, but I'm glad.
0: Yeah, I I think um the the word passion has been thrown around a lot in the past couple of years especially um especially with all those youtube videos to inspire I, I mean i was a victim to all the youtube mo- motivational videos before when i was into basketball like i would use it to i still watch up. them they're still, still
1: good <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're, sometimes they're you're, effective yeah, sometimes you're, you're in the middle of a workout and you're just like ah, i need something cool and you're like the rock motivation <laughs> and it's just the, the rock with orchestra music for like 20 minutes yeah, So good. <laughs> well, you
0: mentioned something about motivation in your Jappy Days live session. You said um, inspiration is sort of knowing what you want to do and motivation is the energy and sort of the drive to execute it. I sort of butchered your quote, but um, can you add more to that? Because you also mentioned a quote after that, which I wouldn't say contradicts it, but adds, I think, more depth to it where... Um, you, you quoted somebody where you said inspiration is for amateurs and the rest of us just oh, show fair. up to work. Can you yeah. expand on those those two quotes for a second?
1: Um, well, I love the f- the second one uh, because it wasn't me. So. <laughs> uh, anything I say, I don't really believe. Um, the second one, inspiration for amateurs, the rest of us just go and show up to work. That was a quote by Chuck Close. He was a painter. He just passed away recently. Oh. He's an American painter. Um, and the whole quote was, I forgot the whole quote. It's just something like, inspiration for amateurs, the rest of us just go up to work. If you wait for, and now I'm butchering it, if you wait for inspiration to come, it never will. Mm. Um, and that really kind of motivates me a lot to just to just let go. You know, just just be like, because when you're creative, whichever field you are, you're in, you know, thinking of ideas is the hardest, most painful part of the process. And you're gonna sit there, sit there and wait for inspiration. Watch some videos, like like you know, like we did, or I still do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're gonna watch videos. You're gonna go through pages and pages of Pinterest, scroll through Instagram, saying, "I'm looking for inspiration," or "I'm not feeling the creative vibes right now, so I'm not gonna do anything." And that's just the wrong way to go about it. And I still catch myself, you know, doing that, where I'm like laying in bed, looking through Instagram, like, "Oh, I need ideas, mm-hmm. I need ideas," and I just catch myself thinking. Wait a second, why don't you just start drawing something and it'll work itself out? Why are you waiting? You're wasting so much time. So that was me and still is me now. But that's the kind of the thesis behind that second quote, Um, which is really, if you're not going to start doing anything, nothing's really going to happen. You can wait for inspiration all you want. It's not going to come because you have to be working Mm -hmm. to find it
0: there. Well, that's great. And I just want to relate to that. With a question um, about your mindset for a second, because you talked about sort of facing that resistance. Well, the War of Art, this book by Stephen Pressfield. It's a great yeah. book. Not the Art of War by Sun Tzu. <laughs> That's a different one. <laughs> but yeah, the War yeah. of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Have you read that book?
1: Um, I've read snippets of it. I've been meaning. It's on my list uh, of a long list of books I, I mean to read but never do. It. No, it's okay. I, I, I feel you, man.
0: Like the, the. Yeah. I have a pile here. I, I tend to just like get the idea of a you book and books. put it down.
1: You, you, I buy books and I'm like, I'll read it some Yeah, and it's exactly.
0: There. Yeah, I have a few it unopened. Yeah, in the plastic still. In the fully yeah, built plastic. <laughs> but in this book of War of Art, he talks about, um, he coined this term resistance. And it's basically this force that, prevents you from doing that or creating that thing that you're supposed to create so whether you're a writer to sit down and write or a mural artist to go to find a wall or start sketching um, all those factors come into play or all these thoughts come in and he sort of lumps it up into one name and calls it resistance so that you kind of have an enemy that you can Mm. tackle and uh, sort of fight at and win that war basically so for you what has your personal journey been like uh, fighting resistance and are you at a point where you're constantly conquering resistance?
1: Hmm. You know, I, I laughed when you mentioned the, the book because I actually learned about it from a motivational video. I was watching. <laughs> uh, it was Joe Rogan. Uh, but anyway, that that does, you know, resistance is something you can never really conquer. Um, uh, just Just knowing that, especially with, in the creative field again where work is never really done. You're always working on new things. It's always different. It's always this and that where you have to continuously remind yourself and continuously kind of push yourself to fight against it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause resistance really is that just kind of like staring at a blank page and kind of pushing yourself to get started. But it's hard because what if the ideas aren't good? What if I draw something and it sucks? What if, it'll take me a whole day and waste it. Um, and that's the resistance, right? Like not getting started, not get going because you're afraid. Um, and I still have that. I, I don't think it ever goes away. Um, I don't think I'm I'm at a point where I'm constantly conquering it, but I'm always constantly fighting it. And I'm always aware of it. Uh, I think that's more important than conquering it is just to be aware that it's there and that you should be fighting. You should be pushing it back at it.
0: That's a great point. Um, so do you feel like you've sort of just gotten better at acknowledging it and dealing with it and finding out how you maneuver yourself out of it or through it? Um, mm-hmm. That's how you sort of approach it, resistance right now.
1: Yeah, I'd say just, you don't get better at it. You just get more aware. You just get, uh, you 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 figure it out earlier, like yeah. this is what it is. Sometimes you're just there, like I don't know what's wrong with me. What's wrong with me? Maybe I'm not inspired. I'm always like that. Like, what's? Maybe I just suck. Maybe this is just yeah. terrible. Maybe I but, shouldn't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I quit. I can't even think of anything. And then that's when it snaps in my head. Like, no, that's the resistance. That's mm. just, that's just fear, kind of telling you you can't do this. And then you're like, okay, I know what this is. Push past it. And then once you get started, the flow just keeps going from there. That's a
0: skill itself, like noticing and being aware of these things, and being aware with how you talk to yourself. You know, because if you can get on your side, then yeah. things sort of become a little bit easier, right? So
1: self talk is a bit of a is a bit of a a skill, yeah, and you kind of have to always keep at it yeah. as well.
0: Self negotiation too, like okay, you do this, and then after you can have mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like it's it, it's mind tricks. You have to sort yeah. of trick your mind. But what you said earlier about just start writing or start sketching. And then the ideas will come. Stephen Pressfield also talks about that in his book and he calls it, I like how he always comes up with names, but he calls it the muse. So the muse okay. is like this sort of being that as you're working and, but only as you're working and, and as you're producing, then the ideas will start to flow yeah. in and it will just naturally yeah. make itself um, throughout that process. Right, so
1: Exactly, exactly. That's part of the quote. That's part of the, uh, the Inspiration for Amateurs quote. The uh, inspiration or the ideas come to you, but they'll only come if you start working. Yeah. There's another similar quote where like, uh, idea, inspiration doesn't exist, uh, but it shows up. But it, it will show up, but it has to find you at work.
0: Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And it's great that you have that mindset. And we'll get back to your mindset in mm-hmm. a bit, but I want to talk a little bit more about the... Uh, general art scene because in one of your episodes you talked about traditional (laughs) mediums versus the digital mediums and you know now this digital art has as you mentioned lowered the barrier to entry for a lot of people and Mm -hmm. the the amount of people who know how to use canva is is tremendously (laughs) rising right so do you think that um if this is good for the industry. Do you th- or do you think that it may encourage people to sort of stop at the baseline canvas skills, rather than moving on to more complex systems like Photoshop or an Illustrator?
1: Interesting. Um, well, hmm, it may. I think it doesn't have anything to do with the programs. So it just has something to do with where they want to take it. Um, because of course, yeah, Canva exists, and some people be like, you yeah, know. No, I'm good. Like I know how to use Canva, I'm good. But some people who, you know, want to push themselves to improve at it, be like, okay, I learned Canva. What's next? Okay. Okay. I want to try actually making stuff on Illustrator or Photoshop or any of that. So it's really about how the person wants to view their progression with 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 art, digital art. Um, you know, it's not for everyone, but you know, it just depends. Like for me, I used to be one of those guys like, oh, you know what? illustrators just uh, i'm not gonna use it i'm never gonna have to use it last year during pandemic i I told myself no i have to learn it you know so i used to be one of those guys that just stopped at the at the where i was comfortable Mm. and i thought no 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 you gotta improve you have to that where's the next logical step okay using a harder program and mastering it so that's what i did I haven't mastered it, I'm just
0: saying, but I'm trying to. So Canva, like systems like Canva, sort of easy to use, drop and drag design systems, kind of get your feet wet, you know, for someone who is not in the art scene, get your feet wet and then if it's up to you, it's up to you at that point if you want to expound or sort of progress to a more complicated platform. But I think what's good about the rise of things like Canva and sort of easy to use design systems is that Nowadays, like with websites or just UI in general, like you can't get away with bad design nowadays. I think the general taste level of good design has grown since the rise of digital art. What do you think about that?
1: Uh, Well, I think it's because we're so immersed in good design all the time. And uh, people's IQ about it has definitely grown, um, myself included, where... You know, I, I I'm just guessing, but before you know, good design only comes around once in a while in newspapers or magazines. But for the most part, people were just watching uh, news television mm. or, or getting tabloids on the street or you know word of mouth news. Nowadays, you have your you have your apps, you have all your delivery apps, you have your your social media apps, you have your websites, and everyone's kind of pushing towards what gets people's attention the best. And that is good design. So, so yeah, I think uh, it, it definitely is that the taste level is definitely growing, but that's only because we're so immersed in it that people are learning more about what's good and what's not.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And because design is all around us, I mean, I was, uh, I remember watching this YouTube video with the founder of Airbnb, uh, Brian Chesky, and he went to a design school. Um, and he started a, a hotel startup. But it's funny because he had that design background. And I remember hearing yeah. his talk where he was saying that if you look around you, like everything was designed by somebody. Like this mic yeah. was designed by somebody. The light that we're using, the webcam, the computer, this table, yeah. this chair, like
1: everything around us
0: was. Someone had designed. to draw
1: that thing first. And someone had to mold that thing first before it became whatever it is now.
0: Yeah. So it's so funny that. There's this um, notion that art and design isn't <laughs> important um, yeah, when, when it's, it's all around
1: us. Yeah, I think you know it's cool now. Actually, that well, now that you mention it, it kind of comes to mind where they made they make videos on Facebook where they show you how how mundane everyday things are made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those like you scroll through Facebook, like Crafty Panda or whatever. Like, oh, so that's how a webcam is made. That's how a microphone is made, and it really it kind of helps educate people as to, okay, so this microphone didn't just pop out of the ground and then some, and picked it up. Like someone had to draw what it looked like. Someone had to make a bold cast of the, of the casing. Uh And then someone had to, to use literally like use their hands and a hammer and clay and everything to put it together first before moving it to production. So, so yeah, everything is designed. Everything has been made by someone. And I think again, social media plays a big role in, making people
0: aware of that. Yeah, it's. I think it's great that our design tolerance or sort of our design taste is growing and that the digital revolution has lowered the barrier to entry for a lot of people. But now we're in this very new age and a lot of people are calling it Web 3.0 where individuals are <laughs> yeah, the whole metaverse thing. But as individuals, we don't trust big tech anymore we don't trust facebook we don't trust it even though we still use it (laughs) we don't trust them like facebook instagram meta the whole metaverse basically so there has been this shift to things like blockchain or the creation of blockchain technology which Mm -hmm. has led to the creation of nfts or for the audience who doesn't know it's called non-fungible tokens and for layman's terms it's basically a way for you to prove ownership of digital pieces online. So, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts about how NFTs will change the art industry? And also, as a follow-up, where do you see yourself fitting in this?
1: Hmm. NFTs are honestly they're terrifying. <laughs> uh, tell you the truth, I have so many friends uh, who are doing well in this space, and I'm very proud of that. And it's good to see. But there's there's also been so many kind of negative things about it that honestly I have. Not en- I've not done enough research to really speak on, but it's good to see that art has been you know growing into that space as well. That it's not gonna get left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how so many things get left behind because of the times. Like how horses never had to worry about their jobs uh, <laughs> going away until they made cars, and so now that- painters, you know, we don't have to worry about jobs going away because everything's digital now because now even traditional artists can make an NFT of their paintings mm-hmm. and it will sell as, as much as a, a regular painting or even more. Um, but it does scare me because, you know, it's so new, it's exciting. And it's so like, there's not enough information, you know, it's something you can't trust completely at this personally for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do intend to kind of try it out in the future yeah. I keep telling people who ask me like, hey, do you want to do an NFT? Like, Yeah, but I got to do more research. And then I never do because I (laughs) I don't have enough time really to just really sit down, take notes. Um, I know it's just like a YouTube video away, but I really want to understand it as much as possible before before I jump into it.
0: Oh, that makes sense. But what do you think about the general concept of ownership in the digital world? Because I remember you were talking about going back to when you mentioned the difference between traditional Uh, art and the digital art you can tendencies you can charge more for the traditional because there's more labor that comes into it and and it's a lot harder to do whereas in digital you can kind of just copy paste it and like you mentioned earlier the barrier to entry is very low so the quality like so do you think that nfts will actually encourage people to be in the digital space more rather than the traditional or actually in fact there are some people who are blending the Blending them both. Yeah. But what do you think about well, I, that transition? I did, mention,
1: I did mention those things in the, in the jappy days, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That was like a year ago when it was brand new and no one understood it. And there was all these negative things about it. It's been like a year from now, from then. And it's really changed up. Um, uh, I do think that more people get into the digital realm uh, as opposed to traditional, but more not because that's where it's really at. I mean, painters will always be painters, um, street artists, muralists like myself, or, of course, NFTs are exciting and digital art is exciting, mm-hmm. but you can't take away that we love being out there in the hot sun, yeah, climbing stuff, getting it done while smoke and fog and rain get all over Boop. us. Um, but there's nothing really wrong about people getting into digital art. Um, you know, it's just another way for people to express themselves, which I'm very glad about. What? I am worried about uh, when you mentioned the copy-pasting thing. It's not that digital artists will just copy-paste their work together. There will always be, there will always be people who do that. Um, what I'm worried is that art theft. Like they would download a, a a picture off the internet, and I've seen it happen. Download a picture off the internet, put it up to one of those yeah, NFT sites, and say this is mine.
0: Oh wow!
1: And it's so easy to do. So. What yeah. I mean, what I mean by the copy basin is that is mm-hmm. that you can go to my Instagram, take a screenshot, and this has happened of one of my artworks. Go to like OpenSea or Rarible or one of those NFT sites, and just put it up. Pay for the Ethereum that it takes to process make it, it into an NFT, yeah. yeah, and then just say, "Oh, this is mine," and then wow. people start buying it, and then you will have no idea because no one will really tell you. That's true. That's that's what I'm worried about with the NFT thing.
0: Yeah, it um, seems that there's a there's because the barrier is so low to publish an NFT or produce an NFT yeah, that's there seems to be stuff. a lot of art theft. I mean, the fact that it's happened to you <laughs> like here. Yeah. That, that's like crazy. A,
1: uh, I saw like a drawing of mine on on Amazon, like some guy made a t-shirt and like what uh, wow. Uh. uh and then it was just a screenshot of one of my Instagram which okay. Um, fine I guess that's Uh, crazy I I made sure to contact Amazon but yeah it's so much easier now in the digital realm to just kind of take someone's photo, take someone's screenshots of their artwork and then sell it somewhere else and no one will be wiser Mm -hmm. because it's so easy on these uh, NFT sites to just do when I I tried it out myself actually I uploaded a picture Mm -hmm. I I got ready to pay for the gas they call it the gas and then I was like, okay, it says here publish. And I was thinking, is it really that easy? <laughs> and then I stopped. That's when I thought, now I'm worried. Because now, you know, I can go, I can take a screenshot of your face right now. Mm-hmm. Put it on OpenSeam, like, here we go. NFT of Joey Tuason's face. Yeah. Um, 100000 Ethereum. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, that's what scares me about it. About yeah. where it's going. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, it... Th- the control regulations yeah. get better. Maybe a
0: way to verify artists, a way to verify yeah. like this is the actual artist. I mean, they're already verifying the art, so I might as well verify the actual yeah. artist in some way. But yeah, yeah it's up still till very now, really
1: I'm seeing, I'm seeing like famous artists they you know, would post on Instagram like this NFT is not mine. Wow. And then they're already big time famous, and like someone just downloaded my picture and posted it, and these are fake. Don't buy these. Well, that's good. And so it's a yeah.
0: It it seems like it's a smart move, at least, from the outside you're looking in for you to wait it out just a little bit, you know, and see if you want to do it in the future. What I find interesting, though, about the NFTs is that th- there's a recurring revenue for the artists, you know, so you will continually get the royalties if it's sold again to another you know, person, which is sort of unprecedented, uh, right, in, in the art scene?
1: Well, actually... Uh, now my legal management side is taking over <laughs> um, I know that uh, there's, there's some some law that allows don't take this is not legal advice everyone don't listen to me I'm just saying uh, I have to say that yeah. uh, or like an artwork sold the original artist can always take a cut and that's completely legal um, I don't know if people still do that now but uh, it's in intellectual property mm-hmm. rights if I'm not mistaken but yeah, that's the cool thing about NFTs is that the original artist or whoever minted it originally, not not always the artist, will always get a small cut of each buy, each buy. Meaning as the artwork gets more and more valuable, they don't forget who used to own it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a little better because now in the arts in the fine arts spaces, in my experience, for example, I would sell a painting for like X amount. Mm-hmm. And then if I if I, for example, get way bigger, like five years from now, the whoever bought that painting could sell it for XXX X, X amount, and I would never get see anything from that mm. um, yeah. regularly. But in NFTs, because it's a blockchain, they can always trace it back and be like, you get a cut, you get a cut, you get a cut, because you, yeah. you made it. It's you like Oprah, it you
0: get a cut, yeah. you get a
1: cut. Everyone, Everyone gets a cut <laughs> because it's really... Because of the blockchain thing. So that's one of the positives, I think, if I'm not mistaken about that. So, you know,
0: yeah, it's very interesting to see how the rise of technology is shaping the art landscape. And just to give the audience a little bit uh, of more of a background on sort of history of murals and you might find this interesting. Um, I would l- like to just sort of go over it very briefly, but I mean, murals have been around since the caveman times, right? Since we've Those pretty had walls, yeah. right? Since we've had the walls, we've had murals (laughs) and early civilization, like including the in Egypt, for example, they use hieroglyphics as part of their mode of communication. It was one of the earliest modes of communication. Then you have, of course, legendary pieces like The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci and the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo. And then you fast forward to 1893 at the Chicago World Fair, where the leaders of nations are talking about how they can use public spaces to align with the country's aspirations. So like you see like the Arc de Triomphe in France, or you see I like all these skyscrapers like being built in the U S cause they're super ambitious. Then in the 1920s, all of a sudden there was a resurgence of murals cause before that it sort of died down. Um, but there's a resurgence of murals in the 1920s in the Mexico the Mexican Revolution um, and there were these three art mural artists I, I don't know what their name is but I just like their nickname <laughs> Los Tres Grandes or the three great ones oh, interesting. Um, and they brought cubism to the mural space so if you look at their artwork it's like telling the story of the Mexican Revolution in walls or on walls and it's cubism it's pretty cool mm-hmm. and these three artists uh, were then commissioned by prominent families in the U.S., like the Rockefeller family. So, what you said at the start of the podcast about it, it being reserved for these sort of uh, well-off uh, yeah, families or so, yeah, society that that aligns with the history. You know, the Rockefeller sort of commissioned these three, the, the los tres grandes, uh, to com- <laughs> to create murals in the U.S. and it started to sort of pick up in the U.S. and then boom, the Great Depression hit, and then the, the president, President FDR, created the federal art project from 1935 to 1943 which very nicely actually helped fund visual art workers and they created over 2,500 murals Um, and this sort of caught on after world war ii now heading into the 60s 70s artists now made murals more about cultural conversations right because of what was happening in the scenes like the vietnam war um civil rights movement and Now the modern trend is like where murals are being more directly integrated with the architecture of buildings and entire Mm -hmm. city blocks. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just wanted to briefly go over that. Where do you think this is going, Jappi? Where do you think, I mean, obviously the whole NFT world, uh, we we dabbled on that, but the fact that the way murals are used, has been used to communicate things throughout the history of time. So in the start, it was just, to communicate basic, you know, words and hieroglyphics yeah. to now where like in the 60s, 70s, it's about cultural conversations with the community, mm-hmm. to it being integrated with the entire designs of cities. Like, where do you see it going? Just in, you know, thinking out of the box here or just thinking based on your experience, where do you see it going?
1: Wow. Um, that is really tough because because of pandemic, it's been hard to actually kind of keep it going. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know before pandemic it was really growing I could see it really taking off all of so many artists are getting out doing murals you know I've my friends and uh, some people who who just messaged me like hey I'm starting to do murals do you have any tips there was a lot Um, and then pandemic hit and going outside was kind of not cool Uh, nowadays I see it growing some more but you know I'm not really sure where it can go not in a negative way Mm-hmm. More like because of what we're experiencing now, it's kind of like a little it just it's kind of just leveled out for a while, yeah, um and with the whole metaverse thing going on, maybe digital art, you know, I don't know what their plans are for that they they're trying to yeah. you know, I've seen like the videos and stuff of like a whole cyber body of a person, maybe I don't know thinking outside the box, maybe artwork in digital murals yeah or now i'm thinking like what if it could be uh like in ready player one you see them yeah uh where you just log into the metaverse or whatever and then mural artists could make digital artwork for live oh that's a good idea
0: dude that's a good idea
1: yeah so instead of painting out here in the real world just okay put on the thing i'm in the metaverse i'm gonna go to work and then you're just painting a digital mural but because of the endless possibilities of technology you could do like a giant wall and have painted with rocket ships or whatever i'm just thinking out of the top of my head
0: no that that makes sense though that actually makes sense yeah. or like you go to a wall for example it might be an empty wall and then an ar will show up of of a MUL, yeah. you know so there are many ways oh, that's, to...
1: that's a lot more realistic <laughs> than what <laughs> i said
0: both both work because if the whole point of the metaverse uh is the blending of both like the blending of AR uh, and VR with real life. It's really freaking yeah. scary, man. That it's coming yeah, a lot yeah. sooner than maybe we
1: anticipated. but Also a lot later than we anticipated. Because if you yeah. watch those movies, like uh, Back to the Future, yeah, you're like, by the year 2015, we're we'll flying cars. Like No, in the year 2015, yeah. there's a great big amount of plastic in the ocean.
0: It's yeah, I remember being like, in bad. 2012, I was like, <laughs> I was thinking about 2015 because of Back to the Future I was like shit we only have three years left for the flying cars yeah. like we well, the gotta speed things are, up
1: <laughs> why aren't we dressed like that yet like what's yeah. happening why we don't have we have s- the
0: self-drying jackets
1: all we have is climate change
0: <laughs> but yeah. yeah well Steven Spielberg movies tend to paint a fantasy speaking of movies your yeah. you're a big Tarantino fan um, well yeah i mean you it, it seems to have you've done some work of his movies and you've it seems that you've been influenced by him and his style of filmmaking in a way so actually that was my question for you like how has the tarantino movies affected your personal
1: style Ooh. um well i don't do a lot of blood and gore uh, because the first thing people think of when they think of tarantino movies is oh it's bloody and there's gonna be feet um I don't <laughs> Yeah, I don't do either of the things, but I do love the, you know, there's a whole pop culture vibe to his movies, especially the more recent ones or not recently set ones, you know, like uh, pop fiction, Reservoir Dogs, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is not recent, but more recent than the other ones. And Mm -hmm. there's a real love for references and, and, pop culture and stuff that i love easter eggs yeah Yeah, easter eggs i love doing that Uh, most of my work especially if they're not like completely corporate Mm -hmm. clients i just get to add in a lot of like weird things in there like weird pop culture references that just just for me just for the fans to see yeah so yeah i just love that in his movies he can openly talk about other movies or he can talk about pop culture things like it's a like it's real life yeah like in in Reservoir Dogs, when they opened the movie, it talked about uh Madonna song, like a virgin. Or there's a lot of actual normal music being played in the, these movies. Like in Pulp Fiction, they dance to Chuck Berry songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just think that there's such a cool way of using pop culture into in his movies that I like to do in my illustrations.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. I didn't yeah. even notice that. But you're right, he does love those sort of Pop culture references. He does love to add Easter eggs. He likes yeah. um, sort of giving those homages to old film and old Hollywood. I mean, the whole movie of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was basically an homage to the it was old about Hollywood movies. Yeah. yeah.
1: He, he just wants to talk about the stuff that he likes, you know, like I, like, and he does movies based on stuff that he likes, like in mm-hmm. Kill Bill. Like, I, I like Japanese samurai revenge stories, so I'm going to make one.
0: Yeah.
1: And then the next movie is, I like western so i'm gonna make one yeah um you know he's unapologetic about the stuff that he wants to make and that's something very inspiring to me because sometimes you sometimes when you're an artist especially now where it's all about likes clicks whatever you start thinking what will people want to see mm. but at the same time you're, you just want to be like well why don't you just make stuff that you want to make mm-hmm. just don't think about the likes too much so there you know this is the unapologetic i like this and i'm gonna make sure everyone knows it about this yeah. movies that's what i like
0: Because sometimes people don't even know what they want to see, right? So the fact that people like Tarantino will just decide to do something that they want to do. And then then people start to be like, oh, you know, I like that. It's the opposite approach than thinking, what do people like? And then you're sort of filtering your creation into a mold that might or might not Mm -hmm. be accepted by the public. He makes
1: things like his style is, I'll make this popular. I'll make this cool. Not what's cool now. I'll make that. Yeah, I get that.
0: And another person who humanized, um, Phil well, in terms of comic books, and that's a big spoiler, but the way, because like, you mentioned how Tarantino you know, kind of humanized the people by playing music, like regular music that we would be listening to or talking about regular things that we'd be talking about. Yeah. Another person who did that very well was Stan Lee with Spider-Man. Um, yeah. And well, also with the Fantastic Four, because it was one of the first comics where he really made the superhero is not like this big shark, shining armor, Superman, yeah. Batman, where they're perfect gods. To They're having arguments, you know, like regular people, the Fantastic Four, like a family. Or yeah. Spider-Man who is having trouble, you know, like paying for his- homework. Yeah, he has <laughs> homework. <has> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what are the main differences? I mean, that's one of them, but for like, as a mural artist and as an illustrator, as a great designer, what are you, and as a comic book fan, um, what are the main stylistic differences between these sort of DC comics and Marvel comics?
1: Hmm. Um, hmm. That's, uh, well, if we're going to talk comics, we'll just be here all day. So let's that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's stick with the movies. Uh, I think the whole human side of it really is makes a very big difference. And that's why Marvel films are more popular than DC films. Because they'll show you, they'll show in Marvel films um, that, let's say, like WandaVision. Like Wanda was watching American sitcoms in, mm-hmm. when she was a kid. And that's the stuff that she likes. Or she watches TV. They, they listen to music. Iron Man listens to ACDC and Black Sabbath. Uh, Captain America, he has a list of stuff he wants to watch. You know, it's just, oh, that's me. I can do that too. You know, like, yeah. I love ACDC. I'm, I'm totally Iron Man. Or, or Spider Man. And Ned, they were, let's build the Lego Death Star. So they make their characters feel like actual people with actual things that they love. And that's why those movies make so much more money and are so yeah. much more popular. Like in DC films, I know they try, um, but it just doesn't seem like these are real people. Like, Can you imagine, I know Bruce Bruce Wayne, like Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. he's been through some tragedies, but do you really believe that all he does is like frown? <laughs> no, because he does other human person stuff. Yeah, he gets course, girls a lot too,
0: Bruce. Bruce Wayne.
1: Yeah, in the comics, he's an actual person. Bruce Wayne, yeah. even though he's just pretending to be a playboy, he does actual playboy person things. Yeah. But in the movies, you know, you see Superman. You really believe all he does is when he's not saving people is, is cross his arms and look at the sky. Oh. Where's Lois? Where's Lois? That's why the movies don't work as much because. You know, they don't really show a human side. They did. They did really well in uh, Wonder Woman. Like Wonder Woman, feels like a real person. Other than that, they're not very good at doing that yet. And that's, that's why a great Marvel point. is winning. Yeah,
0: that's a great point. It's crazy that one decision from Stan Lee years and years ago is now affecting yeah. the MCU today. And
1: yeah, make your characters human, and that makes sense. You know, across all kind of creative platforms, It's the best way to make things good is to connect with audiences. Mm-hmm. Like if an audience feels like like this work was made for me or I understand this, they're going to love it even more than just, oh, it's pretty. You know. Yeah.
0: That makes sense. So, I want now to go a little bit into your story. But, before that, I want to talk about tapping into the inner child because your work, your work is a perfect. I mean, seeing it physically it was just like bam, like blasts of colors, <laughs> and and even talking to the guy who was giving the tour in the in the exhibit, he was like, bata no? like but in a good way, like, yeah. like like you can really see the child spirit like in in this art." So it seems that you've used that, you've channeled that for your style, and then a lot of people have been saying that your work is basically like a big comic book. Like a comic book page ripped out and put on a wall right so my question for you though is how how do you tap into your inner child while making sure you progress as an adult i grow it as an adult
1: well that's the trick i don't try to be an adult <laughs> i try <laughs> as much as possible not to be an adult um, no but when it comes to artwork because I, I view it really as play uh especially when it's just my work like you know, clients aside, clients have their agendas, and I have to make income. Because so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you do the work that they need you to do, but based on what you would do as an artist. But when it comes to work that I like, it's just thinking about, like, you know, like we're capped back into the whole Tarantino thing. Like, what do I like? What's fun? What would be cool to do? Yeah. So, like, in the well, at the same time, have important messages. And I think that's the whole adult progression thing, is to say something important. But at the same time, show the stuff that you like. So let's go with the show. Uh, it's not an ad for the show, but like the show was really about how social media has made us so indifferent, um, and it's, and I, I do that by by ta- by using these characters who are black and white, and they look they look not as fun as the background, and kind of how we will just keep scrolling, 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 and there's so much fun stuff on the internet, but we're always bored with it. Mm-hmm. Like oh this oh I've seen that TikTok before or, oh I've seen the joke before or oh look a great a great podcast swipe mm-hmm. oh look great art swipe and so that was kind of the idea behind the show but at the same time I thought how do I execute this in the funnest way possible oh okay mm-hmm. just go crazy you know just do whatever was fun for me so it's a mixture of wanting to say something important or wanting to to express something important but also tapping into what you love and what makes sense to you and that's Mm -hmm. what that's how i kind of want to do things
0: yeah finding that balance between you know telling an important message or communicating an important message and but also not letting it sacrifice your personal style and how you want to execute it and going back to what you said about the the show uh can you expound a little bit on the skateboard one because i remember watching the jappy days one the jappy days live show you used to have and you were mentioning that i want to i want to paint the skateboard they want to paint the skateboard and it finally happened yeah, so okay. what is that process like creating that skateboard piece of art
1: well again it was just really about what made sense to me it was fun um you know i can buy you can buy skateboards now online on lazada or Shopee or whatever uh, so it's so much, so much easier than before before i had to like Buy a skateboard and then use it for a good amount of time before I think, okay, it's time to pay. Because <laughs> it's like a thousand bucks for a new deck. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the idea behind that was really just to have fun with it. Uh, the artwork was like a, like a fight cloud. And I thought well, it would be interesting to both show the, the, the message that I want, which is the whole disconnection of social media with people through skateboard decks, which is something I love. Mm. And with a meet, with a theme, with a kind of artwork style that I like, which is more cartoony and all that. So that's where it all kind of converges. The important message, which was how everything's disconnected, which means different art decks. One mm-hmm. big artwork,
0: but uh... different things.
1: And I wanted it to look like you're watching a fight on, like a, a conflict on social media through stories, where it's just tap. Ah... Uh... Uh, so it's one big story, but it's it's one big message, one big fight. Just kind of separated into four different stories, and you're just there, like kind of as the impartial viewer. Like, oh, okay, I'm watching this. I'm watching like uh, someone attack, uh, attack someone. I'm watching some very terrible tragedy somewhere, but I'm just viewing it through Instagram stories. That's the idea of the artwork.
0: Uh, that's fantastic man and it really showed and even with um the other two where it was just one guy and then they were painting that was a pair and was that you in the painting
1: oh i use my face a lot. (laughs) okay you know you just use mirrors and you're like okay that's what people look like but sometimes it looks like me (laughs) yeah you gotta use what you have you know yeah
0: but yeah again fantastic and i'll flash it up here so that the audience can see what it looks like and just so you know, those two works down there that you see below are made by Jappy as well. Uh, so he's made it to EDSA. <laughs> but, Som-
1: someday. <laughs> so
0: yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your story, right? So you mentioned that in the Jappy Days Live, you wanted to be a voice actor at one point. Um, oh, <laughs> wow, no. Is that a legit, was that a legit uh, you know endeavor of yours or like a legit <laughs> thought? Like, mom, I want to be a voice actor.
1: Well, I, I wouldn't say, like, I would have asked my mom, like, please trust me on this. I'm going to be a great voice actor. Um, I just like, uh, I just, you know, when I talk and uh, and how I like to do characters, um, it's been a big part of, like, me. I, I grew up doing some, some sort of musical theater when I was in high school. Okay. There's, like, a cool performativeness that I like. And so when it comes to the voice acting, because I love cartoons and all that. Like, hey, you know, maybe someday I could be a voice actor, but yeah, yeah. of course, it didn't work out. <laughs> but do you see try, that uh,
0: but- translating to this stuff that you're doing now? Because, in a way, you're being a voice uh, or you're impersonating someone's voice through murals, let's say with a client, like you're getting what they have to say or what their voice <laughs> is, and you're translating it into visual art. So, in a way, like that concept or the principle of it is still there. like For example, I took up hotel in college and I knew that I didn't want to work in a hotel, but what did I like about it? I liked the fact that you can talk to people and communicate with people and you can call them a guest. I'm like, Oh wait, that's a podcast. So yeah. I decided to do that on, on my spare time. So do you see that connection or was it, or is there so sort of like, no, am I just thinking a little too hard here?
1: <laughs> hmm. I mean, I guess you could say that there is some sort of connection between this, you know, there's always going to be a con like a convergence of your, uh, of your interest points mm-hmm. so when it came to like that like just being expressive and kind of being more animated and just wanting to give kind of lend my voice my my talents to to something else it kind of makes sense yeah that you could you could definitely connect that i am interested in in being animated i'm interested in in breathing life into something and then i i'm also interested in painting and so it just
0: makes it through. Mm-hmm. well yeah i think that's important like well first of all being aware of your interest and then mm-hmm. seeing how they can intercept like for example i was watching this um, youtube video about work-life balance and you know how it's not real um mm-hmm. but it, what is interesting about the talk i don't know if you've heard of the youtube channel the future no, um there if you T U R, they talk a lot about um, design and, and illustration. I think you might find it interesting actually. But what the guy was talking about was oh, I work think life I integration. Yeah. yeah. But what do Chris Doe, the yeah, also called. Chris bald, Doe, that's, yeah. that's
1: a guy I know. That's a guy. Yeah.
0: Chris Doe, Chris yeah. Doe yeah. he was talking about how can you, like, work life integration. So, like, in my life, these are the things that I actually get joy from. And then what are the things that I can get paid for? Uh, what are the things that can bring value into society? And then you're sort of connecting the dots. So like for you, it was, you know, you've always been drawing like since you were a kid, it was, mm-hmm. it was a constant thing of your life. And then, you know, maybe the voice acting thing was a little side, <laughs> side detour, but the concept of like, in, uh performing like in high school, you mentioned all, all these experiences and influences have translated into yeah. who Jappy is today. And, it is affecting a lot of your work. Yeah. So, yeah, can you speak more on basically that process of, you know, when, when things finally, when you wanted to be a pro at this or when you decided that, you know, I want to become a registered freelancer, you know, okay. that moment. Did you feel because in in your Jappy Days life you talk about the importance of registering your yourself as yeah. uh, as a freelancer? So at that moment, did you start to take your craft even more seriously?
1: Um, no, not not at the point of uh, of registration that I take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really when I th- thought that this could actually be something, which was back in college, uh, because I was I've been working doing this since I was in. Uh, in college in uh, La Salle and it, at first it was just all commissions like my friends said, hey could you do my my project or or I would join like sticker conventions or you know just sell my work and then yeah. I started doing murals and then once I started getting paid for murals I thought this could be a job mm-hmm. um, and it was when I got one of my first big clients that I thought this could be my future and that's when I really started to, to say I'm going to double down on this and just take this as seriously as possible because I want to do this. The whole registration thing was really just a formality because um, it wasn't because I got to register to feel like I'm something. No, it was more like I have to register so that clients yeah. can pay me faster. Uh
0: like and you can get clients who wouldn't yeah. have gotten you if you weren't registered.
1: Because you know, in the Philippines, well anywhere, any in any in industry, but in the Philippines, um, big companies want you to be registered so that they could get receipts from you and that their BIR and their accounting all make sense in the end. So mm-hmm. that's the only reason why they want that, especially the bigger the bigger clients. But yeah, I didn't take it seriously. I didn't start taking it seriously when I registered. I started taking it seriously. Basically when I began, like when I decided I want to do this. Like mm-hmm. If you're gonna do this, do it right. And that's what I did.
0: So it only sort of confirmed what was already there. It like put it on paper, uh in a way.
1: A little bit. like yeah, yeah. Now I have I have a little piece of paper that says I'm official. <laughs> I'm employed. <laughs> yeah. I pay taxes. I yeah. like yeah, there that's the only thing it does, like it makes me have to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And
0: another thing you mentioned, um, in your talks was figuring out your price, you know, and I think for a lot of freelancers out there, it's hard for them to really figure out what to charge people sometimes. And you came up with this equation, materials plus time, plus hazard fee or logistics, plus deadline, plus usage, meaning like if they're going to sell it or not, uh, plus (laughs) your value, all caps, your value, Mm -hmm. um, now, all the stuff before that we can kind of get, but how does one determine what their value is in, in a sort of practical way?
1: Okay. This has always been really tough. I, until now, uh, I get asked this and it's just really tough to kind of gauge value, especially like personal value. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you just have to be real with yourself. And it not, it's not always like the easiest thing to hear or the easiest thing to kind of admit, like just... Just sit down with yourself and say, where are you? And how much are you really worth? Not, mm. not you know, objectively, but subjectively or not subjectively, but objectively. Yeah. When I was starting out, I would ask, of course I would ask my peers, like, hey, how much is this? Like, I just really want to know, or I asked people <laughs> who knew how to do that. And of course they were very helpful. Like this is the range. I'm not going to tell you what it is exactly, but this is the range. Mm. Um, I thought, okay. And then I kind of just figured it out like their ranges change because of where they are in their careers. So when I started mm-hmm. out, i like, okay, let's be real with yourself. No bullshit. Chappie, where are you? Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm in college right now. I've only done like two to three murals. I don't exactly know what I'm doing. So I'm going to price it this much. This is the value I can see in my work. So I think it's important, one, to have a reference point. So ask your peers. I don't think it's that too far-fetched to go like, hey, how much should I price? Mm. Um, At
0: least the range.
1: Yeah, give me a range because like, so you, you have a reference point. Like, yeah. let's say I asked someone who was way up here and then I asked someone who was a little closer to my level. And I, okay, that's kind of where I should be. That's kind of my my reference point and this is where I am. Mm-hmm. So one is very important to have a reference point. Ask your peers, ask your friends or if, you're, if, you, if you know anyone who's been in the industry long enough, ask them and then be real with yourself like Mm -hmm. okay i'm not being mean to myself but okay maybe i'm not that good yet and i should price this much
0: that makes sense it's all about like figuring out where you fall in that range with your skill level and where you are at your point in in the career Yeah. yeah that makes a lot of sense but for you as you were growing so you started off selling stickers in 2014 um people asked you to do murals here and there um, you started doing it for, uh, you know, family businesses, titos, titas, Titas, our aunts and uncles <laughs> for the international listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone else but should. that's a huge market though. I think the Tita market is huge. In fact, I was yeah. thinking of coming up with just a simple business where it's just called Websites <laughs> for Titas. <laughs> and you yeah, just make Websites yeah. for Titas. And you only deal with Titas. Like, sorry, if you're not <laughs> you 40 and kids? below. <avy hacen> yes, you're not Tita, you're a mom. Do uh, <laughs> you yeah. have any sisters?
1: Because they go with them.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. You just make it exclusive for titas. Yeah, but yeah, that, that's the point. Like, so you you grew like with your family members or friends who have family members and all that. Um, but at one po- at what point? Because this is just my frame of reference for somebody who doesn't know anything about art. Okay. Like, I'm thinking like as when when you get your first scaffolding as a mural <laughs> artist, like you know you're kind of just like oh yeah, ooh I got my first scaffold, <laughs> <laughs> like. When was that point for you that when you got your first scaffolding?
1: First, my first scaffolding, like, popping the cherry for scaffolding. Um, well, I did start making murals for very small places for like businesses of people's families that I knew, um, but they were very small. They were like you know, oh, I can just stand on a chair. Um, I did a mural in Maginhawa and. That was the first scaffolding project, not because it was very big, but because the, hall, the wall was high and mm-hmm. I had no idea how to get scaffolding. So I had to kind of like ask around, you know, anyone who has scaffolding? Like, yeah, I do. And then I had to ask, you know, anyone who has a truck so I can put the scaffolding for my <laughs> other friend? So it was really a lot of kind of dragging things together. And it was like at a point where I thought before you start thinking, Oh, okay. When a muralist has their shit together, they know exactly where to get scaffolding. Or they have their own resources. Or they just have it. Mm-hmm. But no, that's what I really learned. Like When you're doing this thing, you're running your own business, you're doing your own thing, you have to scrape things together yeah, to make it work. You know, you don't always have the answers. You don't just snap your fingers. And, there it is. Because I'm a muralist. Give me my scaffolding. <laughs> so I had to get that scaffolding. I had to drag it over to the project i had to set it up myself i had no idea how to do that but it's all part of the learning process so that that moment that oh my god my first scaffolding moment wasn't really more of a triumph yes it was Mm -hmm. like oh yeah i'm doing murals i need scaffoldings but more it was it was more like this is the reality of it and i'm it's a great experience to kind of be grounded and learn that it's not always going to be oh it's right there yeah it's not just provided if a client can't provide it but you have an agreement with them you have to find a legally. way to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, legally, of course.
0: Yeah, legally, you got to find a way to make it work. Yeah. Um, and you do have that legal background. For p- people who don't know, um, Jappy started off uh, in UST Fine Arts, and then he moved to the Salle to take up legal management. So very interesting turn of events there. Can I ask you, if you don't mind, what was it about the UST program um, that Ooh. just didn't work for you? Was it because this thing that you had that was so playful for you is now put in a formal setting?
1: Was that it? Oh, okay. Well, sorry, USD. And sorry to my blockmates who might be listening to this. Um, (laughs) No, it was a mix and match of a lot of things. Um, One was a lot of burnout. Um, A lot, a lot of burnout. Like you said, like just this thing that I loved immensely get turned into work was very hard for me to accept. Um, Also there's this disenchantment with art school, just being there and realizing that you're not the only, you know, because when you're an artist and I came from a a smaller high school, when you're doing that, you're saying, I'm one of the only people who does this here. I must be amazing. Uh, Then you get that college where everyone's doing like, Oh, I'm not amazing at all. (laughs) So you get Yeah, You get (laughs) disenchanted with like, maybe art wasn't as, you know, I'm not as talented. I'm not as good as I really thought I was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, also, there was like some pressures, of course, the fam- family pressures and stuff. Like, oh, you're going to do art? Uh, because, again, it was at a time where it wasn't really that big a deal in yeah. the world. So, yeah, it was a mixture of like pressures, disenchantment, and straight up uh, burnout with homework, teachers, and just peer pressure and all that. It got really tough. So I said, maybe I'm not cut out for it.
0: So when you moved to Salle, because, I mean, you've basically spent more time in the sort of uh, educational side of things. In You spent more time with legal management than fine yeah. arts. So it's, in a way, more ingrained in you educationally, not naturally. Yeah. Um, so because you've had this background in legal management, you have this sort of good balance between the right brain, the creative side and the left brain, the logic side. And so you can sort of, you really know your contracts well, you know how to not get scammed. You can call out client BS. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give artists, creatives, freelancers who tend to lean a little bit too much on the right side?
1: (laughs) Um, Honestly, just do your homework, do your research. It's very important. Uh, to kind of know these things and Mm -hmm. it was a big advantage for me to know them beforehand like because legal management is not just legal stuff but it's a lot of business stuff it's a lot of you know it's business school so it's a lot of accounting a lot of math a lot of how to manage this how to manage that how to talk to clients how to you know whatever Mm -hmm. Um, and of course if you're a little bit too much on the right side where you're just I'm an artist I don't need to know these things Um, it's going to be tougher for you down the line especially if you want to Make this into a real business practice. Um, when you're when you have kind of like a closed mindset on learning the business side of things, the legal side of things, mm. then you really won't grow. In my opinion, you really won't grow.
0: The business of art.
1: Yeah, it's it's just you have to learn the business of anything you're in to to mm-hmm. make it successful. You can be a f- you know a very famous singer, but if you don't understand the market, you don't understand the the business of making music. You're not gonna become a star. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion so yeah for, for creatives who are a little too much on the I'm an artist I don't need to know any of those things reconsider please do your research just google the stuff it's all there It's everything's online learn what you can because uh, it will help you down the line if you really want to make this thrive in the long term
0: and after your four years in Basal um, you started doing your Will work. Was there a point where you're like, should I go to law school? Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, so, it- oh, uh, well, there was a point I actually had the application forms and I had like recommendation letters written by my professors at, at La Salle, and I really wanted to do that. Um, and I was also working on commissions at the same time, just, just doing it. But it just came to a point where it was like, again, I just told myself, I want this to work more than anything in the world. And I can't be distracted by things like law school. If I go to law school, it's done. Mm. Um, Cause I'm not the type of guy that half ass things. Uh, so if I go to law school, I can't just half ass law school, then do art things on the side. I can't do art things on the side, uh, art things, and then half assed and then go to law school. The, both those two things require an intense amount of dedication to make work. And I had to choose mm. one. Um, so I chose what I thought I loved more,
0: and that's it. And as you build your, and you, it was a great decision, by the way, might, might I say. <laughs> <Thank> but you. <laughs> as you built your experience with murals, you got more clients. Now you you know, you know, have enough uh, to afford to go to the school that you originally wanted to go to, which was the School of Visual <laughs> Arts yeah, in, yeah. in New York. So you finally got to go there. What was that experience like? Because now you're finally in a city where they acknowledge the value of creativity, like what we were talking about before. What is that like for you?
1: Um, it was really surreal because when I was in college, uh, I would ask my, my, my folks, like, hey, uh, I want to do this school. But of course, you know, nothing against them. They work very hard. Um, you know, we're a very modest family. Mm. Uh, but they just said, we can't afford to do it. Because of course, going to school in New York is really just... Not attainable for most people, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got to think about where you're going to live and all that. So I just kind of dreamt of it. Like even up to, I was working already, I graduated from DLSU. I just kind of dreamt of it. And then the opportunity came where there was like a res- residency program and I could join it and it's this much. And I and I could afford to put myself in that, you know, to, to, to apply and to be part of that with the money I made making art. And it was kind of a really surreal that's when it really hit me a little bit more that you're making your dreams come true. Mm. You know, you are the work you're doing has made it possible for you to make your childhood dreams come true. Mm-hmm. So just being there and being in, in New York and being in, in school, of visual arts, even if for just a two month period, a two month program it was just like a dream come true. Like I made this happen for myself, which made it even like I would I would say more sweet yeah much much more sweeter um again nothing against my folks or anything um it's just it was just really such a great kind of moment to be like i did this for myself and i'm here that is
0: Through a difficult art. conversation to have with with your parents though because i can imagine you know obviously it's any creative endeavor parents are naturally scared to let their children wandering in because it's like you said it's a dark path for a lot of people, <laughs> but what, how would like what would you what advice would you give to a, a kid, let's say or you know someone in high school who they know that they want to do something artistic, but they have to have that difficult conversation yeah. with their parents. How would you approach that?
1: Well, the dark path really is the conversation. Um, I always I always believe that if you really want something to really work and you're lucky enough to get the chance to do it, it will work out if you put the work in. Mm-hmm. But the first step is that 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 conversation with your parents. Um, <laughs> my advice really is to just be honest with them and again be honest with yourself. You know, a lot of people will kind of avoid the painful conversation with yourselves about where you are and, and your capabilities. But really be honest with yourself. Like is this something I'm prepared to work my ass off for? Is this yeah. something I'm prepared to dive into? Is this something I'm prepared to you know lose sleep over and tear my hair out and just just go crazy Mm -hmm. um and if you really are honest with yourself and you really know that you want to do that if just go to your parents and tell them that like because that's i'll just tell you guys what i did like they're asking me all the time hey when are you gonna get a job when are you gonna go to (laughs) law school i'm like i'm i'm doing this i'm making money i have a job but of course they would they were worried of course Um, yeah like any good parents are of you know, uh, again, we're 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 very modest background, so more working class, right? Uh, so to them, having a job is number one, very important. And to them, I just told them, this is my job. I won't sit down with them and tell them, give me one year, one year. Do not ask me to get a job. Don't ask <laughs> me to do anything. One year, and if if I can't make this sustainable in that year, I'll do it. I'll get a job. I'll, I'll apply to yeah. law school. I'll I'll find a way. But I want you guys to trust me. That I know what I'm doing. And as soon as it really got to the level where I was doing like three, four clients a month and they saw me like, I was coming home with new shoes all the time. They're <laughs> just like, okay, Jappy's doing well. No questions. Sometimes yeah. your parents will doubt, but because they care about you. It's not like they're, yeah. we don't want There's you to no be an bad artist intentions. Because it's dumb. Art is dumb. They're going to say that. But... Mm you know, if you can prove to them that you're going to be okay, your parents just want you to be okay.
0: If you can prove to them that
1: you're going to be okay and that you know what you're doing, you have a good head on your shoulders, let them know that and tell them to trust you. And, it, you know, they'll be, hopefully they'll be okay with that.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So that's a very good point. You know, I think that that difficult conversation and you mentioned also about having that difficult conversation with yourself first. I think that's yeah. very important because if you don't have that conversation with yourself first and the conversation with your parents <laughs> will be a little bit more messy. Yeah, because you um, have
1: to be, you have to show them how confident you are in what you want to get done. Yeah. Um,
0: and that you're going to put in the work. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be, you have to end and see it. So very good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you now, last two questions here. How do you remove your ego from your art? Because that seems to be something that you've, uh touched on before mm-hmm. and i think it's very important in any field really in business in sports um the importance of removing your ego from your work and really specifically for your art how do you personally do that
1: well it's uh it's an ongoing thing always because um well not the toot horns but i'm at a level where i can say i've made good progress see that's that's already me trying to to get the ego (laughs) flaring up like i'm at a point where i did some good work and i've made some some sort of name for myself um so there's always kind of the tendency for your ego to be like i'm you're great you're amazing you deserve (laughs) everything in the world um which of course is not true uh you have to complete you always have to constantly constantly push that down um because it will always keep happening um i read this book uh, ego is the enemy by ryan holiday At the end, book i love that book i read like twice a year <laughs> uh so the end of it was really like you can practice all these tips for destroying your ego you can do all that but you don't think that one read through and you're good for life you says you always have to be sweeping you always have to be doing it and so for me you know i always try to check my ego especially when projects come in where like um let's say the other day like there's an open call for like muralists uh somewhere i saw it on facebook like a sponsored post on facebook okay my ego was telling me dude you're way too big to be answering open calls on facebook Mm. um but in my but my heart i was like who who the hell told you that that you're too big to answer the open calls on Facebook. Isn't that how you started? Answering open calls, taking every other chance you could get to paint murals. Mm -hmm. So I stamped that down and I I answered the open call. I I emailed in my entry. Um, And that was just another exercise for me to be like, yes, the tendencies will come up. The thoughts will come up. that Your ego will, will start feeding you all these things. like You're good. You're too good for this or you should be asking for more than what they're giving because uh, because you're you deserve way more than you actually deserve. You just have to again like we said earlier, you have to be self-aware with that. Yeah, constantly have to be self-aware with your ego. Kind of know what's happening, know what you're thinking, and talk to yourself about it. Meditate on that. Um, so yeah, there. It's just something I do all the time is. Whenever I think something, I apply it to, is this right? Or is this just ego talking? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That makes sense. And there's that inflated ego, but there's also that deflated ego to to contrast that where, you know, you have very low self-esteem. And you're like, oh, I can't. But you might actually be a very good artist. Like Bobby Lee is a very... Famous comedian, very <laughs> yeah. good comedian, but every time he goes on stage, he's like, "Oh, I can't." But everybody knows he's gonna kill. I think that's like, his
1: character, though. Like, "Hey, I'm I'm Bobby Lee," you know. I'm, yeah. I was on bad TV, and I'm kind of like this shy type guy. But that guess, might be part of the play. Yeah. Yeah, could be his character.
0: There is that, yeah, but that deflated ego. Uh, but they're, bo- I mean, they're both terrible because they're both they both stop you at your tracks or yeah. prevent you from seeing things. Um, whether you, it, you might your ego might make you think that you're a lot better and like what you said can you're not I'm not. this is not worthy of my time anymore yeah. or it can be the other side where you're like oh I'm not good enough to even answer this open uh, call yeah. so it's about finding you find a, a good balance there
1: yeah
0: and that's great and the last thing I wanted to ask you which I found sort of the most interesting about your mindset to <sighs> The creative process um you obviously give everything into the projects that you do and you know we know that that's a given that that's what you're supposed to do with any project but what i find sort of unique and interesting about your mentality is that well after it's done so you pause and you appreciate it for a second <sighs> I, I just agree. a second right and then after you just you sort of forget about it or you almost dislike it or you start <sighs> to notice the flaws at least um, and, you know, you just end up focusing on what's next. Can you talk mm-hmm. to me about that latter part? Because I think that makes you a little bit unique compared to other people who <laughs> sort of linger on their artwork for years.
1: Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I I just sum it up by this this line from The Great Gatsby, the movie, uh, where Leonardo says, my life has to be like this, always going up. Um And that's just how I also want to think about things with like, yes, I'm doing this and I'm, and I'm proud of what I've done, but what's next? Where can I go from here? What, what things can I improve on? How could I have done this better? And then apply to the next thing. That's why when I do projects, you know, I say that people ask, what's your favorite project? I always say the one I'm working on now, Mm -hmm. because those are the ones you have to really give all your heart and soul into. So you have to love it with all you got, just really do your best at it. And then what they'll, they'll say, they'll ask, What's your least favorite project? The last one I did, like the very least. <laughs> because then when you're done with That's it, it's called Yeah, when you're done and you submit it, you're like, Here you go, client, it's all yours. Then you step back, you're like, Hmm, this is good. Accept, and then you start seeing. Flaws here, flaws there, flaws everywhere. Like, ah, oh, I got to fix that for the next one. So I look forward to what's next. And then I just say, whatever you did wrong that time, do better here. And then you do, you fix that. So I want to make sure that my progression, at least just personally, I don't know how other people view my artwork, but just personally, I want to see, know and feel that my progression is is upwards. Slow, continuous trend upwards um that's why i'm always focused on what's next uh that's why i I can't i can't bear to look at my work when it's done like oh it's done all right uh what's 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 next on the agenda because i just want to do better for the next one i'm I'm excited to get to the next one
0: so in a way your last work kind of propels you to your next because you hold those mistakes in the back of your mind and you're like okay i gotta improve on this this and this and then when that next project hits, you're extra excited because you know that there are these certain things that you can improve on. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, from an outsider looking at it, it, seems like you are you do get a kick out of that progression.
1: Yeah, it's it's always just my favorite thing about about you know following your dreams and following your career is that you hold your improvement. You're responsible for everything. Everything about your career is your responsibility when you're following your dreams. When you're following your passions. Um, And so I just love the fact that I can control how I progress. Not necessarily how much I progress, but how I choose to move forward is my decision. Um, So that's why when I think about the next thing, I'm always like, it has to be better than the last thing. You can never regress. Don't do that. That's not how we want to do things. Find ways to get better, even small things, and then apply that to the next one. Because you can control that.
0: That's awesome, man. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. There, oh, I'm sure there was a lot of golden nuggets that the <laughs> freelance community and my listeners can learn from. And again, thank you so much for doing your part in making the freelance, the creative scene, the art scene here in the Philippines a little bit better. And I'm sure your next project will be a little bit better than your last
1: one. I hope
0: so. <laughs> thank you so much, Shappy. Thanks, It was a Jordan. blast.
1: All right. Thanks, man.